0: How are you doing this week, church? It is such a wonderful thing to be able to come together with you and open up the Word of God and look into the great things that he has for us here. It's a blessing. It fills my heart with joy. I hope it does the same thing to you. You know, I hope you're not sitting out there going, oh, no, he's going to hit us again. (laughs) That's not really what we intend to do. Here's the thing, when we go over things like the Sermon on the Mount, you have to remember, this is probably the most famous, the most respected speech ever given by any human being in the history of the world. Now that means it's not of light character, it's reasonably heavy. One thing I always want you to remember is in case you get this idea, like I remember when I was a pretty new Christian, right, and the pastor would start saying stuff and I'd start thinking, he's talking about me. How does he know that? He's talking about me. We always have to remember, I am never talking about you. Because I don't know anything about you, (laughs) for the most part. I certainly don't know your internal thoughts and the secret things going on in you. But if Jesus talking through this passage kind of has an effect on you, where you see some of yourself in that, that is very probably true. There's very little that Jesus has to say that does not affect us in myriad ways. And if what it causes you to do is come to the place where you do introspection and you start to look at what's going on in your own mind and heart, well, that's exactly what it does. We talk about the Bible as a living book, which is different than the way the, you know, the court talks about the Constitution as a living document. What we mean by it is it's, it's wood pulp. It's made of paper with black lines on it, right? Right? But through this book, God has chosen it to be his instrument through which he speaks to our souls by the active participation of the Holy Spirit of God. So one of the things you always want to keep in mind for people when you're going through the Sermon on the Mount is really this is law, not gospel. Now, I know you've all heard heard this distinction before, right? Law and gospel. In the Reformed tradition, we keep these two things very far apart so that they don't become confused law is the righteousness of God, the very righteous will of God through which he has explained to us what is good and evil. And it can't be any other way because God is good. So, of course, when he created people after his own image and likeness, when he had offspring, when he created us, he made a law for us that we do good and not do evil, right? But we can't be saved through the law. Because we've all broken it every day in thought, word, and deed. We can only be saved by grace through faith. And so God sent a perfect one who perfectly kept the law in thought, word, and deed to be a sacrifice for us. He didn't hold back his only son but sent him into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. One of the most edifying things you can ever do is do an exercise in thinking about how much God loved you. Because he didn't hold back anything in his pursuit of saving you when you did not deserve a stinking bit of it, right? I mean, really, if he had just brushed us all aside and started over, he would have been perfectly justified, wouldn't he? But instead, he came, and he found us there naked, muddy, bloody, full of sin, full of weakness, and he cleaned us off, and he refreshed us, and he fed us, and he gave us clean water, and he restored us to fellowship with him. But that is the gospel of Jesus It's not the law. The law has these traditional three phases, these three ways that it works, right? And we'll talk about those more. But here, Jesus is going to talk to us about anger. You know, there's this show on TV. I haven't actually seen it, but I hear it's good. It's called How to Get Away with Murder. You guys seen it? Nobody wants to admit they watch it, but what a salacious topic, right? How to get away with murder. And all of us, we all want to get away with murder. That's kind of a part of our relationship with God, right? We want to get away with stuff, and he wants to hold us accountable and grow us up. You treat kids different than you treat adults, right? Because they're children, and you want them to grow and learn. But you always have this thing in mind that you would like them to be when they grow up. And God kind of treats us the same way. So let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount here. From verse 21. And it says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Didn't we hear that of old? Where's that out of old? Ten Commandments, Commandments. really famous. Really, Charlton Heston, on the mountain, lightning and stuff. (coughs) Love that movie. Okay, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. So what he's saying is, you've heard this, right? You know this. Then he says, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but... In other words, there's something wrong with our understanding of that. And he goes on. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother might be liable to the council. In other words, the civil law, you might go into court. But whoever says you fool should be more concerned about being liable to hell and fire. In other words, don't worry so much about the effect of you being mean or cruel or angry with your neighbor in this life. Worry about the effect that it will have on your next life. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Now I notice some of this is pretty far afield from our daily experience because we don't do these things anymore. But basically, if you came to church and you had sins before God, you would have to bring a sacrifice with you. And it couldn't be something that had nothing to do with you. From your own flocks and your own fields, something that you earned and something that you grew and something that you cared about, you would take a lamb and you would bring it and the priest would be here and you would give him your lamb and he would slay it right in front of you. And you had to see its blood go, right? And then they would carve it in some ways and he would give some back to you and they would take some. So here's what he's saying. When you go to take your gift for sin to the altar, you're like, I've got something between me and my brother Marty. I'm going to offer this gift, and then it will be covered so I don't have to deal with Marty. He says, before you offer your gift, you better put that gift down. In other words, God does not like lip service. That's what he's saying. You put the gift down. You don't offer your gift. You go to Marty, and you go, Marty, I'm sorry. I'm such a jerk. I know, I just can't help myself. Please forgive me, Marty. Sure. (laughs) Now, that was half real, by the way. (laughs) Because, you know, we're all kind of a jerk in general, aren't we? Except for you perfect ones. The rest of us are kind of a jerk most of the time. Okay, then, after you've reconciled with your brother, then you offer your sacrifice for your sin. In other words, the sacrifice is an external thing you do that's more for you than for God. God's not that into, like, goats and stuff like we think he is. He's not that into it. We had to do that to represent our sin, so that we could see something, so that we could see blood, so we could understand who and what we are. And, of course, the real sacrifice eventually did come. The real one that all those goats and all those offerings represented did come. And who was that? Jesus Christ. And he did offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. But his sin did not appease any of the sins of anybody. The sacrifice of Christ only appeased one party. And who was that? God. It was just to save us from our sins with God. Even in church these days, we still have a cross up here. And that represents Christ being crucified for it. You notice he's not on it. He's not our resident theologian up here, right? Because he came down off that cross, and after three days and nights suffering death, he rose from the dead on the third day. Because he had no sin, he had the power of an imperishable life. And because he rose from the dead, he promises he will also raise us from the dead, right? So this is what he's saying here when he says, when you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember, your brother has something against you. You leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then he adds this, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest he hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. Now, we'll do this again. Marty, you want to stand up? <laughs> Eddie, you go up there. <laughs> go up in the pulpit. Marty, you stay down here. Because we're going to court. Okay. Come, over, come over here. Oh. We're going to the judge together. Because oh, oh, okay. apparently you didn't really forgive me. You were lying. <laughs> <laughs> he says, while well, you're going to the judge, you reconcile with your brother right now. You don't wait till you get to the judge, right? Because the judge will convict you. And he'll call his guards, and they will take you away. And they will throw you into jail And you won't get out till you pay the last penny. Now, who's the judge really in this? God. God. And you are the two people that have a problem, right? And who are the guards? The angels. And where's the jail? Not good. Not a good place, the jail, right? Okay, you don't get to do the whole sermon, bro, I mean. (laughs) So you see what he's saying here. You see what he's saying. He's saying, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge, once he hears all the facts, he finds you guilty, right? You thought you were innocent, but we all always think we're innocent, right? Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and the judge put you in prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out of there till you've paid the last penny. And that might make us think that, you know, well, then we'll just pay it until the last penny, and then we'll be fine. That's not what it means, The debt that we have against God is an infinite debt because he's infinitely good. And we're only a finite being and we can only take so much. You know what I mean? So in going through that, we're going to talk a little about anger. Because what he said here, what he wanted people to understand is if if you hate your brother in your heart and you're angry with them and you think, man, I'd really like to knock that guy out. But I won't because I'm a righteous man. Saying if you've hated your neighbor in your heart, you've broken that law. It's not a mere external show. It's not if you just have a little bit of self-control and can keep from murdering people you'd really like to murder. That's not keeping the law. If you've hated your brother in your heart, you have broken that law. And you need to be restored to God first, but also to your neighbor. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. to go over a couple of texts of anger. First of all, when anybody's angry with somebody else, the Bible has two categories and only two, justifiable righteous anger and sin. Even though we think we're always right. The Bible says almost all the time, as a general rule, anger is bad, and being an angry person is almost always a sin. But we see times in Scripture where righteous people had righteous anger for righteous reasons, right? Jesus got mad once in a while, and when he was mad, he was good at it. He goes to the temple one day. Well, it actually happened twice in the Bible, but he goes to the temple. And there was this area where the people that weren't Jews, which is basically all of us probably, were able to go and worship the Lord. They called it the area of the Gentiles, where we could go and worship the Lord. And they had turned it into a place where they bought and sold animals for people to give in sacrifice. So it's full of animals, and it stunk like animals and all of this. And Jesus is mad. He's like, I called my father's house a place of prayer for all nations. So he gets some cords, and he makes a whip, and he's just whipping folks and kicking over tables. And he's mad. So, you know, that nice Jesus, Reader's Digest Jesus? Not the one in the Bible, right? So he's got a lamb over his back and a red shawl. And he's got that, you know, 60s surfer Jesus look with soft curls and blonde hair. He just wants to be a pal to everybody, not the Bible Jesus. The Bible Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament who brought down 10 plagues upon Egypt. That's the same Jesus, right? So Jesus understands righteous anger, but he didn't get righteous. He didn't get angry all the time with people without cause. There's very few times. Another time, you know, I asked one of my kids about this, and the one that came to mind with him was when he told Peter, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And I said, well, it doesn't say he was angry. And he said to me, well, people don't say stuff like that unless they're angry. (laughs) So he's probably right. So here in chapter 4, now Adam and Eve, his wife. He knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying to him, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore a brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, God, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and fell on his face. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why why is your face fallen? If you do well, or in other translations, if you do what is good, will your offering not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said this famous line, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying forth from the ground to me. So this is one of the first instances in the Bible where somebody's sin was codified within this thing that we call anger. Because anger is usually a manifestation of pride, right? He was offended. He was offended by God, but he took it out on his brother. And God actually has a conversation with him to talk to him about what the sin is here. In Hebrews, it even explains it a little better by saying his sin was that he did not combine his offering with faith. He was doing the perfunctory facts and the expression of mere religion. He knows he's got to give God an offering. He gives him an offering, but he didn't believe and he didn't really want God's love and the fellowship with him. He just wanted to get done with his sacrifice. It wasn't necessarily the difference between the animal sacrifice and the vegetable sacrifice, although Abel's was combined with blood. Abel understood faith in the coming Messiah all the way back here in Genesis and knew that there had to be a death to reconcile him to God. And Cain just did not care. And so God even talks to him about it. He says, sin's crouching at your door. It wants to have you. God warns him. And it had him. Sin consumed him entirely to the point where he actually kills his brother out of anger. We know that anger flows from pride, but pride always flows from this vanity. You are offended. You have not been respected. The people aren't looking at your glory. How dare they say this to me? How dare they act this way to me? Don't they know who I am? And so death enters in the first murder. Through an act that's a direct expression of the manifestation of Cain's anger and lack of faith. Let's take a look at chapter 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Now, you have to remember, there's a complicated relationship with David and Michal, his wife, right? Who is Michal's father? King Saul. When David killed the giant, one of the things he got as a reward was he got to marry the king's daughter. And if you marry the king's daughter, what are you? You're a prince. You're in the line, right? God had already picked out David because he was a man after God's own heart. Even when he was just a boy taking care of the sheep, And it said, I'm going to make this my king because Saul does not have my interest in mind but his own. Now, Saul was one of the most rabidly angry people in the whole Bible. He tried to kill David many times. He tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, and insulted him horribly. And now, now Saul's dead, and Michal is married to David. And as the expression of David's joy that after many, many years, he's finally given the gift that God had promised him when he was just a boy, He's dancing before the Lord. And the people are looking at him dancing. Because, of course, one of the Old Testament expressions of worship to the Lord, what were the two primary expressions of outward worship? One is song and singing, and the other is dancing. And there was always these in the worship services. And so when he comes here, he's dancing before the Lord to praise God. And she says, my servants and all my people see you dancing. And she despised him in her heart. And so the expression of that, David returned to bless his household in verse 20. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father, And above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. In other words, to certain people, you always have to be contemptible if you're right. But she hated him because he was doing what was right. Now, this should be an encouragement to you because one of the things it's saying here is if you want to do what's right and you want to live the way that's right, sooner or later you're going to have to suffer the anger and the contempt of the world. That's a different kind of problem, right? They're not angry with you because you've done anything. They're just angry with you because you happen to exist. But David had his own interesting day in this, didn't he? Let's take a look at chapter 12. We're going from chapter 6 to chapter 12. Now, we all know that the Bible shows us warts and all, right? It doesn't just show us when we're doing well or when everything's working properly. It shows our great moments like when we're killing giants and our horrible moments too. The Bible doesn't ever want you to think that guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and David were perfect. They weren't. They were sinners like the rest of us. And David gets into a situation, it's actually when he's quite old. He's probably about, you know, 60 to 70 here. He's lived through all of his glories. And there was this one season that came up where his armies were going out to war against the Amalekites and the Philistines that were trying to subject his people to slavery, and he didn't go out to war. It says that in the text. And what it means is he was not doing what he agreed to the Lord that he would do. He was not being faithful. Instead, he stays home. All of his soldiers, all of his men, where are they? They're out at the battle line. He's hanging around the palace, maybe in a robe. Maybe he's drinking a little too much. He's watching Oprah. I don't know what he's doing, but he's hanging around at home. He's not out doing what he's supposed to do. And from the rooftop, he sees a woman on her rooftop bathing. And he sends some of his guys down, and they talk to her. I and mean, he gets himself into trouble, doesn't he? Because he's not doing what he's supposed to do, and he's doing what he's not supposed to do. Well, God sees that stuff. I know we kind of feel like we get away with stuff. What we really do is we pray a lot, and God doesn't punish us as we deserve for the stuff that we actually did. But that's a different thing than thinking God did not see and God did not know. So Nathan, you know, for Saul, he had a special prophet that would keep him honest as king, and that was Samuel. And David had Samuel's student, Nathan. Chapter 12, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Now you have to remember, this is the time where David is in the midst of the worst sin he's ever been in in his life. And Nathan comes and tells him this story. There's a rich man he has got lots of flocks. He's got all kinds of things. And there's a poor man that's got one little ewe lamb. And the rich man has a traveler, a friend come in from out of town, and he takes the poor man's lamb and he feeds it to the guy because he doesn't want to use one of his own because the rich man has power. The rich man has authority. The poor man has nothing, right? So he steals from him and he gives him what was the poor man's only thing, right? And David hears this. And he's incensed with anger. You have to remember that even David rarely got angry in the Bible. Oh, he killed lots of guys. That was kind of his thing. You know, he's a king. He's not like us. He's the king. But anger welled up inside him about this horrific injustice he had just heard about. You can tell that he was on a raw edge. He knows he's not in the good place with God, right? Because he had been tutored in that through watching Saul for 20 years. And he says to him, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, he calls out on the name of the Lord. The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, we all know the Old Testament law, right? It does tutor us in ethics and things. Was the biblical punishment for stealing a lamb the death penalty? Not even close, right? The Bible's pretty fair on these things. It's the basis for even contemporary law in the United States and other countries. Stealing a lamb will not get you the death penalty. As a matter of fact, he quotes what the biblical punishment is. And the biblical punishment is the biblical punishment because it is just. Paying back one lamb for one lamb is not usually considered just because there's a lot of cost that you put on the other person by you stealing their thing, their time, their energy, their money, their actual connection to the thing, right? So if you steal a living thing, usually you have to pay back fourfold. If you stole his lamb and you got caught, you better pay back four, because that is God's view of justice. It might not be our view of justice, but our view of justice is usually pretty bad, right? But he even said with his mouth, the man that does that, just because of the enormity of it, because of the disingenuousness of it, he deserves to die. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house. And I gave you your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, in other words, if you had needed more, I would have given you more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David kind of set the guy up so that he'd die in battle. It was a horrible sin. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart your house because you've despised me. And you, you probably know, but if you don't, we should read the rest of the story sometime about everything changes in David's life and his house from then on. Everything changes in his house. Now, eventually, from that relationship, a child is born. And he isn't allowed by God to have all of the benefits that come with normal marriage and interaction. And so the Lord is going to receive the child into heaven. So David lies on his face and he cries out to God for seven days, God, please spare the child, spare the child. And all of his people think he's gone insane. So all of his helpers are gathered around him. And he keeps praying to the Lord and praying to the Lord. But after seven days, the child goes to be with the Lord. And then David gets up because he's known the Lord all of his life. He was in sin, but he's known the Lord all of his life. Those of you guys that have lived a long time, you've probably seen a little bit of this in yourself. He knew better. And he gets up and he shaves his face and he washes and he goes to the house of the Lord to pray. And so his servants come to him and say, He's lost his mind. Why Why did you lay there all that time and now you're just acting like nothing happened? He said, I'm not acting like nothing's happened. That child, I will go and I will see that child. I will know that child. But that child will never come back to me. As long as I laid here crying out to the Lord and confessing my sins, I thought he might have mercy on me. But once it came, once it became clear that you know, that's the punishment that's due for a king and a person in great power and authority, right i knew that child won't come back to me but i will go to them now that's one of those strange things in scripture where we start to see some of the internal workings of god's math logic and ethics right sometimes he does things that are very hard to us to understand do you after a matter remember god made him the king it wasn't just some guy god gave him everything and so the punishments that fell upon him were extraordinary because god had given him extraordinary grace I want to read to you a few more verses from Proverbs 29. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's for how we speak. A hot-tempered person stirs up a conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. But now you must rid yourselves also of all such things as these, says in Colossians, anger Rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Again, it says, in your anger, do not sin. And do not let the sun go down while you're angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must no longer steal but work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only for what's helping to build others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, all rage, all anger, all fighting, all slander, and every form of malice. As far as the reading of the Apostle Paul and his word. So, you know, like I said early in this, this is the law. It's supposed to do a different thing to you than the gospel. The gospel is how you know you're reconciled to God, you're forgiven, and you're free. But one of the functions of the law is to show you where you're wrong so you can change and grow. You will not be saved by your obedience to the law. Neither will you be cursed for your violations of the law as long as you were in Christ, but certainly we should learn and grow from the path that God's laid for us in his law. We should change. Have you ever heard people don't change? Who, who has heard that? The one place you should never hear that is in a church. We deeply, desperately believe that people change. All through their life, they start at one place, and they end at another place. Sanctification is a process. Justification is an instant, but people change remarkably. Their entire personalities can be transformed by one interaction with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Can't it? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our God, you are so good to us.